Hi everyone, thanks for joining. In this week's episode, we are chatting to commercial travel photographer and all-round nice guy, Mr. Tom Parker. We're going to cover his approach to assignments, talking about logistics, preparation and production, and including the joys of air travel and airport baggage. We'll also touch on what the future holds for travelling photographers. Okay, so th- this week we are joined by the photographer, Mr. Tom Parker, who is a travel photographer who works globally for a number of different clients. Um, started off his career working in the city, um, moved from that to journalism in Nepal, uh, spent a few years floating around India, retrained as a broadcast journalist, and finally settled on being a photographer. So, Mr. Parker, uh, can you tell good, us good a morning. bit? Good morning. Tell Hello. Us a bit about <laughs> how, you, how you kind of tell us a bit about your journey and how you got into photography, how you ended up where you've ended up. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the um, you said I worked in the city. I mean, that's a very sort of uh, very loosely worked in the city. Um, I mean, as I think a lot of people post university, certainly back at the end of the nineteen nineties. Um, the sort of range of things you could do never seemed to be very uh, large. Um, I mean, I didn't barely sort of knew that photography was a profession back then. Um, so I wanted to basically make as much money as I could in a very short amount of time and then bugger off and travel and see the world. Um, so I ended, up, um, I ended up getting uh, three jobs in the city um, which quickly made me realize that it wasn't for me, to put it politely. Um, and then I, I, um, sorry, and then I, um, I knew I wanted to go abroad and I'd always fancied Nepal. Um, no, sorry, let me start the story again. So I wanted to go to, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to travel abroad and I thought I wanted to be a journalist. So I emailed, I think it was like six or seven different newspapers around the world. I think there was one in Vietnam, uh, one in Costa Rica. I quickly realized I couldn't speak Spanish, so that was a bit of a non-starter. Um, and then this, the two guys got back to me, actually. One was in Vietnam and one was in Nepal. Um, There's a little paper called the People's Review Weekly, um, which was a sort of very far left-wing anti-america communist style paper uh and they invited me over you know very very loosely um and so i just bought a flight i left the city um bought a flight and moved to nepal and started writing very badly for this little newspaper uh about mainly sort of chomsky-esque anti-american style um slightly conspiratorial uh, articles, well, no, I suppose they were opinion pieces based on, <laughs> on very little experience. Um, and in fact, the, uh, the American, American embassy tried to get the newspaper closed down, I think, on three occasions because of my, um, some of my rants. Um, anyway, so I, I bought a camera uh, before I went. It was a very basic Nikon SLR film camera um, and started taking pictures. And, um, you know, as I'm sure both of you experience yourself, it kind of started to get addictive. Uh, and I, I went to a little camera shop in Kathmandu that um, sold film and actually had loads of different lenses. So I got quite a lot of different kit, 
for my little Nikon and wandered around Nepal, uh, walked up in the mountains and um, sort of, yeah, I guess I've sort of found myself as a, as a very young man. Um, God, this is, this is going to be a long story. It's a very good intro. It's, yeah, it's a good intro. It probably gets a bit weaker post, uh, post, post that. Um, and then sort of over the next few years, I ended up, um, uh, I, I ended up traveling in India a lot. And then I came back and I did a master's in um, broadcast journalism at um, City University because I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. Um, and, uh, you know, great course, great vocational course, highly recommend any kind of course like that. I didn't do a photography course, never studied it. Uh, which maybe shows in my work. Um, <laughs> Hardly. But uh, I, so then I had this interesting choice. I got offered a a job with a very good documentary company called Brook Lapping, which made some of the very best um, documentaries at the time. Uh, I think it probably still does actually. Um, and I had this this one offer, um, and it was uh, to work on this film called uh, I think it was Who Who Is Osama Bin Laden. This was back in 2002, post, uh, was, yeah, 2002, post 9-11. And um, I got offered this job as a researcher, uh, and it was basically interviewing all these, everyone who'd met Osama bin Laden, you know, because the big thing at the time was, who the hell is this guy? Um, and then I'd also done this internship at Radio 4 on a program called You and Yours. And, um, you know, I had no intention of going into radio. Um, and bizarrely they kind of there was a producer there i got on very well with called lawrence grizel who's still there is a fantastic guy who kind of became my mentor and um they offered me the chance to go and do freelance reporting at you and yours so i had this really difficult decision you know do i go into radio or do i go and do documentaries which was the thing i kind of always wanted to do um so I did, I worked at the BBC in London for, I think, a year and a half, which was, you know, fantastic training, great group of people that were there, interesting, intelligent people. Ended up doing some, traveling around the country a lot, doing some very random bits of journalism, making these little radio packages. Um, uh, but I was taking, I also, at the, the time, I was continuing to take pictures. Um, and my partner at the time, uh, she was a journalist as well at a local paper, and she was like, "You've got to, you've got to start trying to make some money out of this photography." You know, I think you're all right at it. And I was like, "Listen, I take pictures of like bicycle chains and things. You know, nobody's going <laughs> to destroy me." Um, and I remember taking or getting all these prints from these films I'd taken of things like, you know, like close-ups of flowers and you know stuff that you take when you first discover photography. You get a macro lens and you think. You know, you start seeing the world in a new way and everything's fascinating. Anyway, um, the guy said, yeah, yeah, all right, come on. Um, but you need to have a digital camera. And I was like, shit, okay. Um, so my, my uh, God, my folks lent me the money to buy a digital camera. And it was the D100, which was uh, we're kind of like the pro-consumer pro one at the time. It was one of the very fast, first digital cameras, great little camera. Uh, and I, uh, I started doing all these local photography jobs. I think one, I did one and a half days a week at the paper and then one and uh, three and a half days a week at the BBC. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was shooting very random stuff, you know, like 
kids' birthday party, not kids' birthday, like sort of, um, you know, <laughs> party. Oh, I'm, I'm going to introduce yeah. you in that in future, you know, kid, kids' birthday party photographer. So that's what that's what I had to do. Now I've, now I've got a kid, that might be, you know, there's definitely a market for it. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, which is Tom's probably something you've also thought about. Um, I, I, I have, don't, yeah. Diversify don't my income or anything. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, so I was doing all these random things. You know, as a lot of people used to say that you know, training on a local paper is one of the best ways to kind of um, learn your craft because um, you're basically taking pictures of fundamentally not very interesting stuff, but you're trying to find interesting ways of capturing it. You know, and I probably mm-hmm. wasn't at the time. Um, but it is a good way of getting your mind, you know, kind of trying, training your mind to try and think about things in a slightly different way. Um, so again, fast forward, sorry, I'm, I'm bumbling a lot here. Uh, so fast forward, I then moved to Sri Lanka, um, in 2004, uh, and I was going to freelance for the BBC in South Asia. Um, and then that was September, 2004. And then, uh, December the 24th. 26th, sorry, Boxing Day 2004, the Asian tsunami came. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was actually on, I was partying in Thailand on the islands at the time, on the other side where the tsunami didn't come. And as you probably, you guys probably remember, nobody knew what had gone on. You know, it was kind of getting all these reports of, you know, there's been some wave uh, happen, but it was all a bit vague. But my mates who I was living with were still living in Sri Lanka at the time. Um so, and as as kind of time went by, uh, I realised what had happened. And I think on the twenty eighth, I jumped on a plane back to Sri Lanka, um, and I obviously saw what was happening. And I was getting calls from various newspapers. I worked with the um, independent correspondent who was covering it. Who'd flown over a guy called Stephen Khan, um, and we travelled around the country. And I was getting passed on to other um, journalists from other newspapers. And, you know, I started shooting with people like Newsweek and uh, Washington Post and The Guardian and then some, you know, the Glossier magazines. Um, so it kind of, you know, Tsunami in a weird way was sort of the start of my um, good exposure in my photography career. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, it kind of snowballed since, you know, from there. And I've, you know, lived in India and spent a lot of the last, well, since then, the last 16 years, I guess, yeah, on the road. But your permanent base is London? My permanent base now is London. Yeah, my, uh, I, so I moved back. I lived in Mumbai for three years, um, and then um, we came back. I lived there with my now wife. Uh, we came back in 2011, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of a it – was, it was a tricky decision. I mean – uh, it was a difficult place to live, and I was—I'd kind of had a, had enough of living the slightly crazy existence you do over there. Um, and then we, so we moved back to London, and it's—you know—if anyone who's lived abroad for any substantial amount of time, you kind of you realise that moving back home is the most difficult move you can do. Mm-hmm. Um, It's—you know—you get the massive culture shock there because there's something quite easy about living abroad. Uh, your life's a lot easier. You can jump on a plane whenever you want. Everything's quite exotic and fun. You come back to London, you're sort of facing, you know, your, your old self and all the other things that are attached with living at home. Um, yeah, so I'm based in London now, but it's actually very good because I've probably since then spent uh, anywhere between four and seven months um, abroad, 
you know, shooting on on different assignments. Um, but I never tend to go on. I never tend to go away for more than. I mean, it used to be sometimes up to a month, but now it's generally no more than two weeks, maybe yeah. two and a half weeks. It all depends, you know, what the assignment kind of breakup is and whether I've got two assignments in a row or whether I want to stick a bit of personal work on the back of an assignment, which I try and do now a lot more. Um, uh, yeah, and it's, you know, it's always nice to come home, uh, but sometimes I'm back and then I'm back for two days or I'm back for a day. And it's all a bit weird because your life kind of is out of sync. And, you know, as you guys both know, it can take, you know, a week to get back into that old rhythm with your partner and all that stuff. And when you get back and you've got other stuff to sort out and you're, you know, you're acting like a madman, um, which, you know, one tends to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it, it can be tough. But um, I, I I, now that- I try and go away for sure. I'll go away for one assignment and then come back. Right. Than trying to stick loads in a loads in a row, and now that I've got a child as well, I think that that may have to change a little as well. Yeah, I've got the, I've got the same thing. I I think for me, always traveling out for shoots and stuff, the hardest part was always coming back. Obviously, it's great to come back. You're really happy about being back, and you get to see family, etc. But for me, I would I'd get loads of requests. I couldn't really maybe action until I got back into the office. So then exactly. I'd, I'd get back, and I'd be like it's wonderful to see you, but I've got to do this. And they'd be like, you've been away for three weeks. You, why are you doing that now? So I've, yeah. I've, I've had to change a few things around, obviously. So I'm, I'm now way more uh, mobile, I, I think. So I can action, I think, every request from anywhere in the world. But it's... Yeah, um, yeah it's, that, that, exactly. I mean, ideally, I think you guys are probably... Um, both a lot more organized than I am in terms of that. Kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but it's always that thing, isn't it? You're in bloody, you know, uh, middle of nowhere, you know, St. Helena. And somebody says, um, if you got those high res for that shoot you did for us last year. Yeah. And you're like, um, no, and you're, well, to, I- you're trying to bloody manage clients and, or trying to get, you know, as Greg knows, cause I share a studio with, with, with Greg, I'll get somebody mm-hmm. in the studio like they'll get a panic call from you know top of a mountain in Papua New Guinea saying like, "Can you go into the Drobo?" And I don't know what the, <laughs> the file is. I'm not quite sure what the file number is, but I'm pretty sure it might be in that folder. Mm. You might like spending like 40 minutes of your day looking for a, <laughs> a file for me. Uh, How- or it's it's Hannah, my wife, who also does the same. You know, and it's, I mean it's known as Parker duty. Um, oh, good duty. <laughs> it's like there's a phone call and I'm, I'm suddenly being nice, you know, to people. Uh, I think it's probably a tone of voice. Um, uh, yeah, so trying to get a bit more organized of that. And, and yeah, that's that thing. When, when you're traveling all the time, you know, it, it can be difficult because your life's in disarray. Um, and then getting back into normality can take um, can take a bit of time. Um. I'd be interested then to kind of get a sense of um, what your typical kind of travel assignment is. Because obviously, as you said, we, we share a studio. Um, and lucky yeah, lucky, lucky boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, when, how long have we shared a studio for now? You haven't got the studio sharing diary. I've got no. one. A little marketing every day. A little love heart every day. It's like, 
grateful. I do a little prayer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, full disclosure, we met in um, an Irish bar in Kuala Lumpur, didn't we? We did indeed. <laughs> we did indeed. Yeah. And you, we, you, we, nearly, we, you nearly made me miss my flight. Yeah, we are. <laughs> very expensive, very expensive pints of Guinness. Because <laughs> yeah. well, I, I, I was, um, I convinced you that um, that it was all right to get to the airport with forty five minutes before <laughs> or some nonsense like that. And yeah. I made my flight with the same reasoning. <laughs> so so we beers with your mates and somewhere fun. The last thing you want to do is go to the bloody airport. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but uh, we, you moved into the studio. A few months, I think, after after that, didn't you? And um, yeah, it's three just... years ago, actually. Wow. Okay. Time yeah. flies. Well, how do you think? How do you feel having a studio has helped your practice? Um, do you want me to answer the assignment one first or that one? Well, I, I mean, never, yeah, I never a bit of both. Bit both. of both. Yeah. The... Studio I... needn't be a long response. And well, how do you feel? It's okay. Yeah. I... Well, I mean, the, I, I think the thing about having a, I mean, there's two elements to having a studio. One is if you're a studio photographer, um, which I am not, you know, I'm a location photographer. So I don't use the studio, um, you know, like yourself or like a lot of the other people that we share a studio with, a lot of the other very good photographers we share a studio with. Um, but I think it's, uh, I think mentally it's very good to share a space uh, with other people who are in the same business of you, uh, business as uh, as you, aka photographers, um, and it's very useful, you know, because as a photographer, it can be quite a lonely pursuit sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very good to kind of bounce ideas off, uh, whether that's you know creatively, uh, logistically, or from a business perspective. I mean, I think in some respects, the business perspective is probably the thing that we talk about the most um just because you know we're in this when you're in the studio you are dealing with so much of the admin of photography which a lot of people um maybe who who aren't photographers don't aren't aware of you know particularly with kind of the with digital um but now you know sort of um you know how much you charge clients uh you know licensing um you know just kind of the how much can i how much do i think i can charge a client what's a reasonable rate to charge a client um you know how long should the terms of the contract be mm-hmm. uh, how long do i need to shoot this uh, so i think there's, there's quite a lot of uh we there's quite a lot of question you know in, inform, sharing information on clients and how to deal with them and i think that's that's really useful because i think that's kind of in a way to become a successful photographer from a business perspective which i think is a large part of being a photographer is you know negotiating the business side of it um, is understanding how to deal with clients effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know how much you can push a client. You know what's reasonable. Um, you know because some people will ask you unreasonable things, and there's ways to negotiate to, you know, to appear reasonable. Um, you know, and everyone's always pushing and jiggling and um, you know negotiating and bartering. Uh, and I think you know learning the mechanics of, you know, if a client emails you and us want something from you but it's you know the figure's way different from what you had in your head how to try and get to a position um you know to try and get to a point where you're both happy and i think that is that's the key to the business side really is being able to negotiate that landscape of the industry 
Um, and, you know, I have an agent which does that on my commercial, for my commercial side, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, really useful to have um, because they know the nuts and bolts of the industry, nuts and the bolts of dealing with, you know, agencies and art buyers and, and whatever, much, much better than I do. And it can mean that as a photographer, I don't have to get in any, any of the sort of nitty gritty of, you know, bartering with somebody about how much my day rate is because I want to be the guy who, um, you know, is the fun, creative person who, you know, brings all the ideas and stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. it's very good to have that separation. Um, but in a studio, yeah, I mean, I don't know what you think, Greg, but, uh, you know, from a creative perspective, I think, because I was talking this to another guy in the studio, Tom Layton, um, uh, yesterday, you know, about how I think as a photographer, um, that sharing of work is something that is probably not, um, not we don't do enough of it in the studio. And... I think there's a certain, I mean, you know, myself, even though I've been doing it for a long time, there's a certain kind of self-doubt um, that you get as a photographer, um, particularly perhaps when you're doing something which is slightly outside of your, you know, your your box. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of that fragility and um, nervousness, which, which I still get, um, which is good, you know, which is great because it makes you realize that, you know, you, there's always loads to learn. You don't kind of, you still don't know what you're doing. Um, but I think if if there could be more sharing of you know in our studio certainly i think that that would be a useful thing and i know it's something that we've talked about um and that's you know it's bizarrely something like instagram you think that might be the way to do this but i for me uh we'll talk about instagram later because there's a whole nother massive talking point Um, but i don't find instagram as useful as chatting with other people um, about your work, you know, who I, who I know and trust in, you know, in person. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes down to, you know, just for, for somebody who doesn't know what a typical day for you looks like, you, you tend to be, you know, you shoot a lot for the, the big travel titles and there's not many, uh, of those titles around, but m- pretty much everyone will have heard of the, of the top three that you shoot for. Yeah. How does a typical day go? You get a you get a, a phone call or an email, and and they ask you if you're available and you can travel to some location. What do you go through in terms of preparation? Just talk us through the kind of typical travel assignment, um, what it involves, the kind of realities of the job. You want it in so we're in in London rather than on on the on the ground. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, yeah. I mean, one of those one of the beautiful things about being a photographer, and I'm sure. Uh, you get this. I'm sure you get this in all uh, walks of life, actually. Um, when you know you get an email and they say, you know, it says the title is like Bolivia or you know Papua New Guinea, and it's you open it up and it's like, would you like to go to Bolivia for ten days? Um, you know, and I still get that that hit, you know, that excitement um, of you know crumbs you know what a great opportunity um, i'm going to go to this place so um yeah so it's just my personal you know that's, that's how the, the email makes me feel um but i i obviously get quite a few offers um some which i will take and some which i will not take mm-hmm. uh, i tend to you know obviously places which i've been to before um i want to know more about the brief more about the job um you know i'd be less inclined to take it you know i want to go and do something which is new where i haven't been Mm -hmm. 
you know, generally a new country, but it can be a new city um, in a country. Um, you know, and for example, I because I lived in India, I used to get assigned a lot of jobs in, in a lot of jobs in India, and I just got slightly bored of it. Really, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was no longer exotic to me. Um, I knew. I knew how to shoot India. I mean, that's uh, not in an arrogant way, but I, I knew how I shot India. So I kind of got a little bit stale. Um, that has changed subsequently, but that's that's another story. Um, but I will ask the client, you know, I, I want to know more about the shoot, um, obviously where I'm going, how long I will have in a place, um, what kind of opportunities I will have to photograph in different places. Um, you know, because I'm sure, you know, both of you, know that on certain jobs you get there and you're like you know i've got i haven't got any time to to shoot here Mm -hmm. you know i need you need physical time on the ground particularly on something like a travel job because you've got to you've got to find it yourself it's not like a advertising job or a hotel shoot where the thing is there you Mm -hmm. know quite often you're 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 also relying on good weather good light those kind of things that are out of your control and so you need the time exactly. to have a weather day and you know you've only got so many mornings and evenings with you know golden hour etc yeah exa- exactly exactly so yeah i mean you work out in your head yeah what are my shooting opportunities here um <laughs> and yeah exactly that you know as as any travel or, or location photographer or whatever fashion photographer anyone who's shooting outside is totally dependent on the outside light um you know, and if you, you're going in the rainy season, which can have its benefits as well, you've got to make sure you've got to make sure you've got at least you know a bit of time. So you get, say you know you get some jobs, and they say we need a cover, you know, and sometimes it might be a cover with a model, and you know there's a team of people. You've got one morning to do it, mm. and so then I will say, well, I'd I'd explain like we need more time than that, you know, um, you know we might get it might be pissing down with rain. You want an outside cover. Um, so it's trying about negotiate as much time as possible. And I think it's about being, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, professional with, with, with the big magazines and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the editorial, you know, the good photo editors, the good art directors, you know, they know what's involved in a shoot, mm. you know, they know there's so many different factors, which you're playing with, which you, you just can't, you know, you, you they're totally out of your control. And in a way that is kind of your skill as a, as a location photographer or travel photographer is to be, is to know, is to work all that out and maximize, maximize the good shooting hours and your good opportunities. Um, and I think, you know, that really is the main skill of a, of a travel photographer is to work out what to do when and where. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the skill of a lot of, you know, street photographers, um, anyone who's not in controlled environments, you know, is really is and i think that's experience you know a lot of people can take a good picture but you've got to know how to get that picture you've got to Mm -hmm. kind of produce in a way Um, yes is there anything you use uh for 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 example when i am out there just to make sure i'm kind of up to the minute i use dark sky the app on my phone so it goes you've got clear skies for seven minutes then it'll be pissing rain for 25 minutes and then it'll be light rain then it'll be clear again so I know yeah. that I've got to get the shot in seven minutes. Yeah, exactly, anything- exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I've got, uh, I forgot what it's called, the Sun, is it Sunseeker? Sunseeker, my favourite. Which yeah. is also the name of a luxury, it's also the name of my boat, 
Yeah, uh, yeah, mine, mine too. <laughs> I thought I'd recognise you from somewhere. Central <laughs> Bay, yeah. yachting buddies. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, do I use? I mean, uh, what do I use? Yeah, so I use that. Um, I mean, I look at. Um, so yeah, so all right. So how do I go about making sure I'm maximising um, my opportunities? Well, I mean, I, I will try and plan a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I know I've got to shoot uh, this, that, you know, I've got to shoot eight different things in a day. So, no, in fact, I'll break it up more. So I've, I've got to shoot. I've got seven days in somewhere. And I've got to – I'm providing the client with 150 pictures, mm-hmm. um, which are all supposed to be good, usable pictures. Um, and I would I would expect from a seven-day shoot – I mean, it's totally variable. I would probably get – I'd probably get between 200 and 250 uh usable pictures and you know there would be a limited amount of variations of the same thing in that sure. so there would probably be 150 different photographs mm-hmm. um, and for the you know kind of publications the luxury travel publications i work for these kind of these kind of clients you know they need a very good mixture of different pictures i mean this obviously varies from location from job to job but you know, um, let's say I'm in, um, let's say I'm in uh, the uh, Bazaroto Archipelago in Mozambique. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that sounds totally pretentious, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, just uh, there is it? <laughs> let's say, for example, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> right. no, I'm a complete wanker, but um, yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I use that because I'm. I'll tell you why I'm using that example. Uh, Basically, I, I was on a shoot there, and um, it's for it was for a, it was for departures a few years ago, and um, it, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about different shoots which have different elements to them, um, and you go somewhere like that, and people you know people may think you go there and you're just taking pictures of amazing beaches and all that kind of all that kind of stuff, but you know mm-hmm. you can't get 150 pictures of a beach, you know it's, mm-hmm. it's simply impossible. So you've got to be really creative in terms of um, you know how you're gonna uh, how you're gonna get those 150 pictures, mm-hmm. um, and so you're stuck on this island. You're stuck in one resort, and you've got to get 150 pictures, decent, usable, high quality pictures, and you're stuck in an area that's like it's a it's a tiny island, it's about two miles by three miles, and you know that's where the real kind of mental creative process you know comes into it um you know and for someone like that you've you've got to shoot usually with these high these sort of luxury publications you've got to shoot the accommodation so mm-hmm. in if you shoot accommodation you've got to shoot bedroom you've got to shoot well you, you've got to shoot you don't have to shoot anything but you've got to shoot things which look good and usually you have to shoot a bedroom which is a very difficult thing to shoot uh, anyone who's tried to shoot a bedroom to make it look interesting is quite difficult. So you have to style it. You know, you have to kind of throw some things over the bed or get a book out or, you know, throw a towel, do the old drop of the sheet where the sheet looks ruffled but in a stylish way. Um, you've got to, you know, then you've got to maybe shoot some food. Uh, the old drop of a sheet is that like a bit of Parker magic? It's it's <laughs> just throw a sheet on the floor. <laughs> uh, Voila! Yeah. The best way to throw a sheet is actually just to to literally throw it 
and a lot of good stylists will the way they do it is put just like you just like put your hand up you just kind of drop it don't like try and make it don't like fiddle around with it but that there's a certain <laughs> skill as well which i don't have um <laughs> but um then so you, then you, you'll shoot the hotel and then you think right i've got to shoot some portraits but i don't really want to shoot portraits of staff but i might have to um they're the only people around so what am i going to do um so then you have to try and convince the staff to get out there. You, you have to pick the interesting looking staff. Um, so you have to convince the staff to kind of dress up as, um, I'm, this is a very extreme example. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, so in, in Bazarutu, I, there was a guy who was a wicked horse rider. Um, so, and he looked fantastic, you know, fa- you know fantastic physique, great face. So I got him, got him out on a, on his horse, he happened to have a horse, and we got him riding into the sea. Um, so I shot him underwater, uh, which was great fun. Um, we had a helicopter. That's the only way of getting there. Um, so we did a lot of aerial stuff. Uh, we had a boat, so I went out on a boat and, um, you know, shot some half in, shot some half out stuff. Um, and you start when it's weird when you're kind of when your choices are limited you actually start to be more creative when you've got this massive sort of choice of stuff. And funnily enough, Tom, we were talking about Calcutta before. Um, mm. It's quite a tricky city to shoot in a way because there's so much going on. Uh, you kind of think, God, there's going to be so many amazing pictures to shoot here. I, you know, with your eyes, you see like there's everything going on, these great characters. It's very overwhelming. It's very overwhelming, you know, and I'm sure you both had that, you know, and there's an amazing market in Africa or something. And mm-hmm. like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And you come out and you're like, I didn't get anything, you know. It was- <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're stuck in a sort of, a, you know, a, 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 I don't know, like a room in some burnt out building and you're getting low, you know, you're feeling really creatively inspired. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, coming back to my point, it's um, a very long-winded way back to my point. Um, when I'm when I'm on the ground, I will try and because I've shot, you know, I've shot a lot because I've shot a lot of countries and a lot of different places, and you spend a lot of time shooting. Um, so you sort of you get a lot of it. You know what works and what doesn't work up to a point. So, sure, yeah. so the night before a shoot. Um, I will have looked at the different options, locations we could shoot. The client will often have, you know, they'll have things that need shooting, so I will make sure I go and shoot that. Um, but I will try and shoot that in a different way to how it's been shot before. So I mm-hmm. would have looked at, you know, reference shots of other people from what they've, you know, have, what they've done um, uh, and try and, you know, really think outside the box. Um, and then I will do my own research, say, in a city like Calcutta, uh, of other places which, which look good. I will speak to my guide. I'll talk to my assistant, you know, if, if, if there is one. Um, that's very good to have a local assistant shooting abroad uh, mm-hmm. because they know the city, they speak the language. Um, yeah. so and they I, know good places to get food. They, exactly. They know best places to get food. Um, they can act as your fixer. Which mm-hmm. you know, which is massive. Um, they sort of uh, produce a fixer type type person. Um, so I'll, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll, and then I'll ask staff at the hotel. I'll just ask everyone. You know, I'll ask my driver. Drivers mm-hmm. often know 
the city's better than anybody else, you know, and they'll also know the sort of the weird parts of it as well. Mm. So, I mean, generally speaking, drivers are an invaluable source. And obviously, because you're spending a lot of time with your driver, um, you, you, you're speaking to them more than anyone often. You know, my drivers often end up becoming my best mates, you know, <laughs> over, that, over that short period of time. You know, you have those really intense um, relationships. Yeah, because it's, it's funny, isn't it? The, the time we spend with these guys is actually very intense. So I, I was shooting in Indonesia a couple of months ago, and uh, I miss the guys I was with. You know, I, you know, they were really, really good fun. I was there for two and a half weeks and we basically lived in this van dro- driving to and from like rubbish dumps. It was very glamorous, <laughs> but they, you're right. They, they become, you know, they're, they're, they, they know everything about the place and they become almost like your best mates. And uh, yeah, I've come away and I'm, I'm still, I still have video calls with them every couple of weeks and we've, we've stayed in touch because they're, you know. They they really kind of help make the project. Yeah, I, I always I also find they're always very interested in what you're doing because mm. um, that they, they you kind of show them uh, a different angle to look at things from a different perspective. Yeah, uh, you know, and I'll always bother them. You know, I'm sure you guys do the same. I'm always demanding, like, can we do this? Can we do that? You know, is there a person that looks like this or? Mm-hmm. It's just like this, and I think that's probably from my journalistic um, background. But you get that as a travel photographer, you have to be a journalist. You have to find out what the story is. You have to be curious. You have to ask questions. You mm-hmm. know, you have to be kind of relentless but not annoying. Um, and I think that's why I love travel photography as a whole, generally, because it just allows me just to kind of explore my curiosity. Um, yeah, and. Unfortunately, I can't. I can't do that in London. I need these sort of exotic, full-on experiences to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it, yeah, it keeps me sane. Um, it's interesting. I guess one thing I've always loved about your work, Tom, is is the fact that you are able to go to places that I have seen photographed multiple times, and shoot them in a way that. Um, uh, that's very creative and in a way which I th- look at the image and understanding the kind of, you know, the mechanics of photography can look at it and kind of go, I can't still can't figure out how he shot that or, you know, how he thought of sh- shooting it like that. Um, and obviously that's why you get hired to shoot for who you shoot for. Um, but how do you find that, you know, obviously your industry in the, in and to some degree, my industry, because I, sh- I shoot uh, travel work as well, there's a lot of change happening in terms of kind of influences that are traveling and kind of are in this gray area where they're not journalists. They're not necessarily, they're kind of quite often they'll be working for, you know, uh, kind of being sponsored in a way or working in a different way to how we traditionally work. Do you think that them, the kind of the rise of, and I hate the term, but the rise of the influencer is changing the travel kind of industry in terms of photography? There's a lot of work that's produced that just looks the same. And I found that I've been in, I don't know, somewhere like Santorini, for example, and it's almost been ruined by the amount of people that sure. are queuing to get the same picture because they've seen it on Instagram and they all want to get the same photo. Got to get Iceland. the likes. Got yeah. to get the likes. <laughs> Iceland's the same. Iceland is a country that's really, really pushed the whole kind of Instagram 
thing and, and invited a lot of young influences over mm-hmm. and it's become this kind of go-to destination sure. but i know from having worked there that, that that's obviously had a negative effect as well yeah well, with, of- with, with the iceland example they're actually and it's the same in amsterdam and santorini the tourist boards are trying to um they're trying to discourage uh people from coming because it's been you know a victim of its own success um yeah i mean the instagram thing is i was thinking about this just walking around the park thinking about this trying to work out exactly how I feel about it. I think it's really too, I think it's quite difficult to compare what what we do and what um, the majority of Instagrammers do. I think they're two different things in a way. Um, you know, I, I sort of, I respect anyone who goes and works and does, you know, shows the world to people. Um, you know, I've got, I've got no issue with that whatsoever. Uh, and I think it, they're kind of running in parallel in a way. Um, I think with with Instagram, I think the trend really is, as you say, is to kind of go to a beautiful place and take a beautiful picture of a beautiful thing with perhaps a small figure in it. Um, and don't get me wrong, they do look great. You know, uh, we know we know how they're shot. They're all shot using particular software. A lot of them are done via drone, you know, and I use a drone. Um, but as you say, they're all quite homogenous in kind of their feel, mm-hmm. um, you know, and there's nothing, there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And I think it's sort of, I think it's, it is playing a certain part in this kind of digital, um, addiction, which, which we have, you know, and I think the way people consume those pictures is slightly different, hopefully to the way that. Uh, we take photographs uh it's probably not because probably most people see my work on instagram so um <laughs> I, I can't really say my work is 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 any better but i think probably there's slightly more of a craft i think it's um i think there's probably a bit more work gone into uh thinking about the picture i think it's not copying what other people have done mm-hmm. um i think that becoming you know shooting for the kind of uh, now dwindling number of editorial um, travel magazines that exist. Um, you know, it's not, you need to be able to shoot lots of different things. You need to be able to shoot interiors. You need to be able to shoot food. You need to be able to shoot uh, exteriors. You need to shoot, be able to shoot portraits, landscapes. Mo- you know, you, there's a whole range of different skills needed. Um, and a lot of the Instagram stuff that's got out there the travel stuff is is very much big landscapes, um, and it is mm-hmm. you know it is fantastic. They do look beautiful, but I think it's probably a different craft um, to what to what we do. Um, but I'm not you know I'm not I don't want to take anything away away from these things. It, it's not for me because um, the process of doing it I think is probably less engaging. Um, you know, it's I think for me the whole joy of travel photography is going out and meeting people. You know, and getting in difficult situations, and mm-hmm. uh, hmm. asking people questions, and finding out about their lives, and you know, I think I was talking about this earlier on with with my partner was, um, you know, what is it that I love about photography, and is it the photographs, and you know, do I I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I think when you come back from a shoot or you've come out from a a really good day shooting you know, you're really into the photographs and you're like, this is fantastic. And, you know, for 
I would, I would say generally three to four weeks afterwards, I am into the photographs and I do like them. But then something else comes along um, and you kind of, you, you don't forget those photographs, but you realise as time goes by, the things that really mattered in the photographic, in the process of travelling, the process of taking pictures, are the taking of the pictures rather than the photographs so much. And the people you meet and those drivers and those weird cups of tea you had with people or... Yeah, you know, that weird bar you ended up in, which you know things got a bit spicy, <laughs> or that flight you missed, or that you know that, those weird encounters are things which I think I really value, and I mm. think um, I think that Instagram thing, in a way, kind of there's none of that. It doesn't translate that. It's kind of like a, in a way, they remind me of those old posters that you you still get in places like India. You know, you know, like a beautiful waterfall or a. You know, it's got it's we've sort of reverted back to that sort of poster type mentality, um, which for me doesn't do that much. But I'm I'm definitely not going to take it away from anyone who's doing it, and I imagine they're having a load of fun doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. So hats off, hats off to them. You know, if you can work out a way where you get to see the world and have fun and have beautiful, you know, be- have beautiful times with nice people, then fine. Yeah, great. So with that in mind, is there is there any kind of thoughts that you've got in terms of where the the industry that you is kind of heading? Is there a market for I mean, we've seen kind of the resurgence of um, magazines like Holiday magazine that used to be big in the 50s and 60s and would commission people like Robert Capper and Henri Cartier-Bresson and, and now commission is much it's much smaller than it was back then. Um but it's it's almost like a bespoke kind of travel magazine, and obviously the magazines that you work for are generally incredibly creative in terms of what they use visually. But are there? Do you see kind of a there? There obviously will be a desire for stuff that isn't the poster kind of shot, like you're you're talking about with with Instagram, like something more in depth, something with more mm-hmm. character, something that goes a bit deeper. Um, where do you think? that is going to be found moving forward if magazines for example continue to decline in the way that they have done over the last decade well i mean i think the interesting thing about the magazine industry is that there has kind of been the decline of a lot of the big name titles but as you say there's been you know there's a massive resurgence of a lot of these smaller more niche titles um, you know, like holiday or, you know, like cereal or, or, or whatever, you know, there's been a whole flurry of really high quality, um, uh, you know, great magazines, you know, like a Vaughan, you know, which you, you've shot for, um, you know, and these are fantastically produced, uh, don't need the adverts, perhaps have a slightly um, less rigid editorial guideline because they're not so dependent on the advertisers um probably have less budget well definitely have less budgets um but i think you probably have greater freedom to perhaps do what you want um and put forward your own voice in them um Mm -hmm. i mean holiday really is holiday is kind of a travel-y fashion-y magazine rather than a i'd say a strictly travel type publication but you know it's beautifully produced um you know and it has most photographers that shoot for it are are fashion photographers um Mm -hmm. but i think there's there's a lot of very exciting niche magazines now you know and if you go into um 
if you go into, you know, in, in London, certainly a lot of these specialist news agents now, I mean, the, the variety of magazines you can buy is much bigger than it ever was. Mm, um, I think it's a bit true. of a myth. Uh, I think the mainstream, I, I don't think most people go into news agents anymore and buy magazines. People um, get subscriptions to magazines. That's the main way that people um, people get magazines. So there's, there's the less random buying of magazines. But, you know, if you like a magazine, you subscribe to it. Um, mm-hmm. And I subscribe to quite a few magazines that get delivered through my door. Um, and I think, I think they're brilliant. And I think I still think for, the, for people who like the quality of visuals, for people who like... Uh, you know, who like a t- having something tactile in their hand. There's still nothing like a magazine, and a lot of these new magazines are printed on very nicely printed, great grey paper, mm-hmm. um, really thoughtfully done. You know, the design is fantastic. Uh, so I, I, I'm excited about about the magazine industry. Um, I mean, I happen to t- still shoot for the more um, I want to say mainstream, but the you know the, the the large circulation magazines, which are you know fantastic you know they are very very beautifully put together um you know objects and um you know the best people still working for them so i I think it's an exciting time in the industry i mean i I hope this i hope the covid thing um i mean that's a that's an interesting uh challenge for people who work in anything travel or you know it's a challenge for our whole industry really Mm. you know and whatever you shoot you know advertising or um you know, food, still life. I mean, that 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 to me is the biggest challenge. Uh, obviously, from a, as a travel, you know, editorially, I shoot mostly travel. So that's what's going to happen with that is going to be uh, is an unknown at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm trying to stay optimistic, but I think it's going to take a little bit of time for things to get back into you know the old ways. And in a way, now I sort of look at the sort of the dream life which I had. And hopefully it will continue as a, you know, as a traveling photographer, you know, you both, both live very similarly, you know, you kind of sometimes pinch yourself when you're on a assignment and think, is somebody actually pay me to do this? Mm. Um, I think also what, what this whole COVID breaks made me kind of think back. I kind of look back and go, oh, do you know what? I remember flying at the time. <laughs> at the time it was a huge pain. I hated it. But actually now I'm kind of going fond memories. Remember, I'm looking forward to flying again. <laughs> well, I, I do also think there's a lot of places that actually will have really benefited from the respite of not having tourism at the moment. You know, we've mm-hmm. all been to parts of the world, um, you know, around. It seems quite bad in certain places as areas of uh, Thailand and the Philippines where they've, you know, they've had to stop tourists just because it's got so bad. Yeah. You know, look at somewhere like Halong Bay in Vietnam. It's just, it's like a, yeah. a, a, float, a floating rubbish tip. Mm-hmm. at the height of season so you do wonder hopefully if, if this is is potentially going to benefit certain areas give them a little bit of time to to get back to normal to resume um, yeah i mean i it, it's it's weird because obviously i we all travel a lot and you know i i don't want to be i don't want my travel curtailed in a way because that's kind of the way that i've been fortunate enough to live my life um but with this whole, you know, as you guys have, have seen, you know, and, and you go to these places, they are overrun by tourists, you know. They, mm. they are, there's no question they're ruined, you know. There's, tourism has gone gone wrong. And, you know, I'm definitely part of the problem, you know. Instagram is definitely part of the problem. Um, so you do start kind of asking yourself these questions about, you know, how responsible it is 
um, to promote places. And I know from um, some trips I've had, um, you know, there is this ethical dilemma. Um, you know, I've just come back from Antarctica um, in December, and I, I did, you know, run it. I, I did have trouble um, justifying it to myself, you know. Um, mm. But I know I knew another photographer would, would have done it. So in a way, that's kind of me not doing it. it was was not a solution. Um, sure, there, there is an argument to be had as well that people going to these places, as long as it's it's, it's managed carefully by the the place that they're visiting. I mean, that's mm-hmm. their responsibility ultimately as is a country in which it happens. Um, is that hopefully people will learn something and they can connect in a greater way and they'll have an understanding. It's like the argument being if somebody gets the opportunity to go on a safari and see animals in the wild, then they're more likely to care about the welfare of elephants, for example. Mm. The yeah. problem lies is in, in, in a lot of developing countries, the tourism can end up developing in a way that perhaps uh, kind of outruns itself or isn't particularly um, carefully managed as it should be. Um, so what we, I guess I'd be keen to know, cause we're trying to, we've, we've probably got about 10 more minutes. So it'd be good to get from your kind of your years of traveling. What are your kind of takeaways? What kind of things do you feel like you've, you've learned? Um, do you have any tips for people when they're traveling? And that can be anything from kind of the kit you work with to negotiating airports or just traveling in general, or mm. any kind of takeaways that you've kind of picked up? Cause I'm always interested to, to pick people's brains when they're as experienced as someone like yourself to see, okay, what would you tell your 20 year old self? You know, what have you learned along the way on this journey? Mm. And have you ever been held at gunpoint in an airport? I have, right. I'll, I'll t- so I've had it, I've had been twice, twice now. Or, or generally speaking, um, what have I, what have I learned from traveling? I mean, I, I, I guess there's, there's the photography side of it. And then there's the, um, I mean, from all this time, I'll talk about it from a photography perspective first. I think, um, I mean, one of the main things you learn from sh- traveling so much and um, being abroad is that um, you realize that when you do shoot, there is there's only a certain amount of productive time you can actually have. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, you know, my my main goal when I shoot now is to do make myself prepared so that I am in the shooting zone as quickly as possible. Mm. And I'm sure you guys both had the same thing. You know, when you're in that magic point where your eyes in, you know what to shoot, you're seeing the world differently, you can go and speak to anyone you like, you can go and charm people, you know, mm-hmm. you can use every single skill you need to go and get a good a good photograph when you're in an alien environment. Mm. Um, so uh, being prepared, you know, is 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 the best thing. Um, is the thing that I, I've learned now is that I know how to prepare before a shoot. I know how to do research. Uh, I know when I hit the ground what I'm going to be doing. Um, so I know mentally how to get in that that space. And I think I was thinking about this. You know, even this 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 ad job I just did in Spain. Um, before I, when I've got a big shoot, um, the morning of a big shoot, uh, and I'm nervous about it, you know, I, I still get nervous before big shoots, which I think is good actually, because it means you, you know, you're taking yourself seriously. Um, yeah. you know, I always psych myself up, you know, I always say like, come on, 
come on, you're going to do this. Like, this is going to be the best shoot. You know what you're doing. Like, this is going to be amazing. Enjoy it. You know, enjoy it. And then, you know, and then if things are going wrong on the shoot, which inevitably they do, particularly when there's so many different elements, you know, you're you're more relaxed about it. And, you know, you're trying to think creatively about, you know, how you get around these problems rather, rather than trying to get sort of your head, you know, screwed up and... Um, mm. about you know about all these things factors you can't ultimately control um which is kind of the good thing about sometimes working on your own because you're totally in control and i love that responsibility of only me uh deciding everything and i know it's my fault if something goes wrong mm-hmm. you know vis a vis you know you've got a team of 20 people and you know you've got hair makeup stylist you know client producer whatever you know you can't control all of that you have to kind of let go, which is a, a kind of a, a totally different thing. And I love both of them. You know, I love working in teams and working on my, on my own for different reasons. Um, from a practical perspective, uh, I just very one more minute on on this thing. Um, and the other thing I think that traveling so much teaches you is just, you know, the joys of life, really. Uh, and I think that's why it's addictive. And I'm sure you got, you know, you both have the same thing, you know, traveling, being able to travel the world, um, explore new things understand people a bit better under, understand yourself a bit better i think mm-hmm. it makes life a bit easier um and it's just you know it's utterly joyful going to see the world and just you know you just understand a little bit more about it uh and just those funny things that you know funny things that happen funny people you meet uh things that probably wouldn't happen to you if you if i just stayed in london um you know i'm not saying People don't find that joy living in London, but for me, I kind of I kind of need to go outside my familiar environment for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean it's just a, it's a joyful thing, and I'm I'm just grateful that I, you know, I've I've managed to find a profession that allows me to do that, and it does satisfy mm. my every need when I'm shooting in the zone in somewhere you know wicked and beautiful. It's you know life couldn't get any better in a way. Um, so practical things about when I'm traveling. Um, I was thinking about this because I know that you two are, are sort of uh, you. You like your packing, and you're very much into we do, it. We do. <laughs> I mean, I'm probably slightly uh, less into my um, my kit. Um, I'm probably not into my kit enough. Um, but often, because if I'm doing back to back jobs, actually, my kit doesn't leave my bag, so mm-hmm. it's sort of like it's all in there anyway. I guess I've tried to over the years. Uh, I've tried to bring what I take with me down. Um, I used to go away with like seven lenses, um, you know, like f- four primes and three zooms and, you know, shift and various multipliers and um, always two camera bodies, big camera bodies. Mm-hmm. Get back from a shoot and you're just like, I used, didn't really use much of that. I used my 50 um, and I used my 135 and then my 24 to 70. And then you remember like on the last day, you've got all these other lenses. You're like, shit, I better use that one, you know. <laughs> cursory pictures of it. Um, so I think you get you get to know actually what, what you like shooting with. And then you start looking at pictures. I mean, what I what I found is that I what I realized there were I think there were five focal lengths which I always shot at. And even if I was shooting with a zoom, I'd always be I'd always shoot at uh, 20, uh, 24, 35, 50, 50. 85, <laughs> 135, or 200. Right. Like, 
oh, these guys that like uh, the camera counters are onto something, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, they have got a bit of a racket going on. <laughs> They've got a racket going on. But um, you, there is obviously something in that, the way the human eye works. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I pack as light as I can now. But now, you know, you need to take a drone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I take it, a, a flimsy underwater housing, which I often don't use. Um, actually... <laughs> I took it to. Uh, I took my underwater housing to Australia, thinking I'd, I'd do some stuff in the rivers there in the Northern Territory. And my guy was like the Sav Lord, who's like one of the most famous guys up there. He was like, "Mate, like he's full of Crocs, mate. What are you thinking?" I was like, <laughs> <laughs> a bit of research. You didn't realize <laughs> Crocs in Australia. Who knew that? Um, so, so you've got to take all these different things. And now, of course, you know you need to take film stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Which I know me and Greg have talked about. It's a whole nother bloody ball ache. Um, <laughs> I've got a, you know, a lot of my clients now will want some filming stuff as well. So the drone is obviously great for that. Mm-hmm. You know, with your stills, you need a gimbal, you need a different tripod head. I've got one of these little Osmo pockets, which is mm-hmm. basically a really good lazy man's um, uh, gimbal. And, you know, if it's mm-hmm. going to play on the digital, on the screen, I mean, you know, most people don't, wouldn't know the difference mm-hmm. um so you got to think about that and then you know you're, you're trying to switch you're trying to shoot stills and then you think shit i've got to shoot some video but the gimbal's not set up and you know uh, yeah so i mean it's a whole See, i try and simplify the, stuff as much as possible now uh, that was one of my reasons for doing another camera swap uh when i moved over to because i'm using the Leica sl2s you literally to shoot over to video you just flick over on the menu system and it you're good to go right yeah it's stabilized i don't really bother with a with a gimbal because nothing i'm shooting really requires it and then it's all handheld still but because it's all in body stabilized i'm i'm enjoying myself (laughs) so i I don't need to drag that much extra kit no and it it is all about that because you don't need you don't actually need this just because you've got loads of kit it doesn't mean you're going to get great pictures you know, yep. in a way, it's more cumbersome having more kit because mm, you always try to definitely. think about it. Have you, you know, got any? Got, be on the creative process, I think. Have you got any little bits of kit uh, that have kind of made your life like super? I'm going to show you what I've got here for the viewers at home. I've got a travel puck by a company called Skyroam. And it is a USB-C charged personal, I'm not endorsed, <laughs> but it's a, it's a personal 4G hotspot, which has got pay-as-you-go data on it. So I can pull up 4G internet, if it's available, but normally 3G, anywhere in the world for a flat fee. So I don't have to worry about crazy data costs when I'm, when I'm traveling abroad. Yeah, I've come across, I've met a lot of guides actually have those, a lot of foreign guides, uh, mm-hmm. obviously do guys around uh, different countries uh that is a very good one um i mean my my number one tip for travel for anyone who's traveling abroad as a photographer it's the most banal thing but i didn't my uh my old assistant t- uh showed me it it's the most stupid thing ever but it's a multi-plug two multi-plugs <laughs> yeah i mean it's probably the most obvious <laughs> thing in the world but you only need one adapter and you've got mm-hmm. seven charging sockets it's brilliant Yep. You clearly haven't watched my um, my travel kit bag videos on YouTube, have you, Tom? I, I could have no, saved that. I'm, I'm saving that for when I'm feeling down. 
youtube.com forward slash greg fennell exactly um what else god i mean not much else really just just i just try and keep it as simple as possible but um when i'm traveling so i mean uh, when i'm checking in i mean this is another thing that photographers have is trying to check in um with you know 36 kilograms of hand luggage which we all have you know which is absolute ball ache mm-hmm. you can't buy extra hand luggage on 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 most jobs um so with that i mean i what i tend to do uh, if it's a difficult airline uh, i trend i you, if it's excuse me if it's a difficult airline um you you have a little ob- observation of what's going on at the other check-in desks mm-hmm. and you try and make an assessment of who looks nice um yeah yeah, and you, you go for that person. Um, the mm-hmm. other one, the other technique on that is you look for if if you're in that bit on the rope where there's lots of desks o- uh, open, you haven't got a choice where you go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look for the um, you look for the person that's the other customer is having a massive argument with the person behind the desk, and then you go up and you're just the nicest person in the world. Char- charm personified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. obviously. But uh, see, for right for me. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the ways I deal with it is I, I when I'm traveling, have a Peak Design 65 as my as my camera bag, and it looks just like a completely regular backpack. And because I'm a big guy, even though it's a big bag, it looks small on my back. So then what I do is I whip it off and I throw it around like it weighs nothing. Oh, that that yeah. I and then I put one, yeah. I put it yeah i put it in the measuring thing and i'm like good yeah it fits and then i pull it out chuck it on my back yeah yeah yeah. No, i know that and one. people go yeah, it's fine it's just nothing in here it's like yeah the, do you know the trouble is though i did do it once when i when i had a particularly like heavy load on it and i threw it on my back and then completely forgot about the weight and it basically pulled me over to the left hand side i thought oh that actually looked pretty obvious <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, luckily, I don't know about you guys. I've actually never got on a flight without. Uh, I've always managed to get on a flight, even. I've uh, I've never had to check. I've never had to check my cameras, and, and for me, if I do ever have someone who's super difficult, I go. I'm not trying to be an ass, but can I have your name? And then I'll sh- I'll open up the camera of the bag, and I'll just be like, "This is about thirty grand's worth of kit." And you're forcing me to check it. Just so you know, I know your name. I know that you're forcing me to check it. And then most people go, oh, I can't be bothered with this. Take it on. What, what are you going to yeah. do? You're going to go back to the airport, out where they live, and like go around and like. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know quite what. I don't know quite. What, people for that. I yeah. do. I do. I do. But I, I don't know quite what the idea behind it is. But most people just tend to kind of crap themselves when they realise that they could somehow be liable for it. So they most most of the time they just go yeah yeah, yeah. there you go also fine. lithium batteries they don't like them in the hold so I just say this is, this kit is riddled with lithium batteries it needs to needs to be in the cabin but- that's that's where my uh, Turkish airport uh, gun story comes in so years and years ago do you remember the do you, you guys have probably used them at some point the Profoto Acute six hundreds remember them yeah. Mm, yeah so when i was 23 24 so it's like 10 12 years ago i had flown to turkey for a shoot and there was like super conflicting advice do you put the batteries in the holds do you put the batteries in your hand luggage 
Um, and the, they were pop-out square batteries that looked like ultra-military-esque. Like, they were scary-looking things. And I had them in my hand luggage, but not with anything else. So the woman at the desk pulled the battery out and was like, what's this? And always going to have the paperwork, Tom. Well, I know that now, obviously, but I, I pulled them out. I was super young, so we'll we'll let this one go. But she pulled this battery out, and I didn't understand quite what she said because there was a serious language barrier. My Turkish was not good at the time, still not good now. And she kind of said, huh? what is this? And I kind of, like, I mimed connecting it and then just kind of went, as in, <laughs> as in you put the battery in the flash and then flashes happen. But what she heard was you connect the battery to the bomb and explosions happen. And I was like, oh. So she pushed the silent buzzer. And about 30 seconds later, I just heard like 10 heavy footsteps. And I turned around and there were five guys with MP5 machine guns. And I was like, oh, uh, this is terribly awkward. I'm so sorry. And then I then I get my phone out because it's like early days of like cellular technology. And I tried to connect to Google Translate or Babelfish at the time. And and then she was like, what are you doing? Thinking I was trying to set something off on the phone. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. So that was good. <laughs> taking a picture. Oh, you're up for yeah. as well. Well, do you know what's really funny is that afterwards, I'd managed to kind of tell them what it was. And then they marched me down through the back of the airport down into where all the luggage was they made me climb on everyone's baggage and find my bag i then had to open it up connect it all up show them how it worked and then on the way back up in the elevator i'm with these guys with machine guns and i was just like this is funny isn't it silence they they had no sense of humor about the whole thing at all and yeah uh, ne- never never joke about bombs in airports that's definitely no. a travel takeaway <laughs> yeah so yeah if, if any of the listeners attempted i would not recommend it uh-huh. <laughs> one thing i found I, I travel with um uh a jacket with incredibly deep pockets <laughs> deep enough in fact to carry a 7200 and i found that i've occasionally actually had to empty the heaviest lenses out of my bag and put them on the inside of this jacket mm-hmm. um and you suddenly you've lost two kilos on, in, with one lens you know from your from your carry-on weight the other thing is if you actually connect up and have the cameras over your shoulder that's deemed permissible yeah mm. if you have two bodies with the biggest lenses you've got and you whack them on then your back will suddenly probably weigh about eight kilograms less than it yeah because they're, they're then classified as personal items aren't they, they exactly don't, they don't matter there's lots of ways, but the main thing is really charm. And charm, um, charm gets you everywhere. Ch- charm gets you everywhere. One thing about Mr. Parker, he's very good at talking his way into places and out of things. <laughs> I've put my way out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, before you go, the last yeah. couple of very quick fire questions we have. So we always like to ask our guests um, two further questions. So one is uh, your favourite current photo book just in case it's one that we don't have and something that we might be interested in getting. Favourite current photo book? Well, I mean, it could be the photo book you've always loved. I mean, Ah, okay, okay. Uh, don't know how fickle you are. Uh, <laughs> I'm quite cynical. I mean, my, my favourite current photo book, and actually this is, I've kind of come full circle because this is actually one of the first photo books I've, uh, I ever bought. Uh, it's, it's not a how-to, is it? It's what, sorry? <laughs> It's not a, a how-to. Yeah, that's it. No, yeah, A to Z. Um, no, it's. Um, I was looking at it uh, yesterday. Uh, it's Workers by Sebastião Salgado. Um, and it's really, 
it's the, it is it is the book that got me into photography like properly mm-hmm. i think um and i think it's the so it, one with the miners yeah i mean the miners yeah yeah i mean with the brazilian miners yeah i mean he spent yeah. i think he spent eight eight years doing it and i just the, the scale of his projects are just absolutely inspiring and insane you know he'll travel all around the world to 20 different countries you know 30 different countries over a mm-hmm. 10 year period to do a book you know much like his genesis book um but i think the thing that he does incredibly um he just makes everything he combines art photography with a story you know better than anyone anyone else you know he makes anything look beautiful um mm-hmm. and there's not you know he doesn't photograph in that book there's not he's not sort of he's not trying to put across poverty or anything like this everybody looks fantastic in it even if they're you know in their own kind of way um and his his composition's the best um his subject matter is just you know subject matters it's not it's nothing you know workers but he just makes everything just look great and it's classical uh it's everything i like in a in a in a photo um and i, I could look at that book for you know days on end i never ever get bored um, and he's just inspiring, you know. I think important part of a photo book, you want to feel inspired after it as well. Mm. And I'm sure a lot of you guys have it. You know, I bought so many photo books, and I look at them twice. Yeah, that's it. You know, and they're on my shelf, yeah. and and that's it. And that might be something to, else to do with life, but um, that book, I just keep on going back to whenever I'm, you know, in need of inspiration. Um, Fantastic. And the final question then is about your, your desert island camera. If you had to have one for the rest of your life, what would it be? One that brings you joy? Um, okay, sorry. I thought the question was which camera would I save from a fire? It's a different question. Well, I mean, I could I could arrange for that if you want. Well, which, which camera would you I know you where you live. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which camera would... <laughs> Number four, Northway Road. <laughs> which camera would you save from a fire and then go to a desert island with well i mean it's 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 a difficult question this um i i mean i thought that i should you know come up with some you know uh answer you know like the the first brownie my grandfather gave me or you know that has to be your phone isn't it that's what you're going to answer yeah (laughs) the best camera is the one you've got with you (laughs) yeah i mean that's the other answer but i was actually thinking um was the the one i'd say from a fire would be the uh the d100 um which i've still got at home um simply from a purely nostalgic perspective because that is the camera that started the journey you know Mm -hmm. really that is the thing that started the last 15, 20 years of my life off. And if I hadn't have been sort of, I've hadn't made that leap and uh, my parents hadn't, you know, lent me the money, um, I probably wouldn't, I probably might be doing something completely different. Um, And I think for me, because I came to photography quite late, I think starting very early on in digital, I think that that was a good thing because I didn't come from a massive, you know, I shot film, but I didn't come from a massive professional um, background of shooting film. So there was mm-hmm. no jump for me to uh, to make. So I'd probably save that little guy. Um, still, still still takes good pictures, I hear. 
two megapixel photos. And obviously, it's, you know, for the right prices, uh, available um, on the free market. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. I, I really think there are some uh, interesting little nuggets for our listeners. Um, it's great to get your wisdom, uh, you know. Lack of, yeah. But thank you very much. <laughs> Lack of. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. Well, thanks so much for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to know more about today's guest and read the show notes, head along to www.exposednegative.com. And you can find us on Instagram at exnegative. See you next week.